The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. Ever since President Biden referred to so-called mega-Republicans as, and I quote, semi-fascists, the previously shunned F-word has become omnipresent. At the same time, Christian nationalism has also become broadly used. And today I will talk about fascism in general and its relationship to Christianity in particular with Richard steigman Gall. Richard is an associate professor of history at Kent State University, former director of the Jewish Studies Program, and a specialist of historical fascism, in particular its relationship to Christianity. In 2003, he published The Holy Reich, Nazi Conceptions of Christianity, 1919. 1945 with Cambridge University Press. In the past years, he has also explored fascism and religion in the contemporary period, including in the US. The perfect guest, therefore, to explore these current debates. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks very much for having me, Koss. It's great to be here. So first, my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? I come very late to team sports, very much a fair weather fan, I think is the expression. <laughs> so when I started living in Toronto in the early 90s, of course, this is when the Blue Jays were doing very well. And we were in a pub in Toronto when the Blue Jays won their second World Cup. So I'm going to say then, <laughs> especially once the crowds started flooding the streets and all the traffic had to stop, it was, it was fun to be out there among them. Absolutely. Second, what is your favorite political song? Oh, gosh. Well, as you pointed out, I've been at Kent State now since 2000, in fact. And so I think Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, their song Ohio probably qualifies as a political song. I happen to like them anyway, so it's not just out of obligation <laughs> to my employer. <laughs> we had the 50th anniversary, by the way, of the shootings, if anniversary is the word to use just after COVID came and we were going to have a big sort of commemoration. Jane Fonda was going to come to campus, for instance. Wow. And we were very much hoping that we could host a CSNY reunion. <laughs> Neil Young notoriously hates everyone else in the band, so that wasn't going to happen anyway. Right. But that's the closest we ever came. And I doubt now that's ever going to have a chance again, I'm afraid. Right. So finally, what is your favorite political book? Well, understanding politics outside of the contemporary setting, I'm actually going to say the book I use when I teach my class here at Kent State on comparative fascism, which is Robert Paxton's Anatomy of Fascism, which is now 18 years old. And I think it's still a brilliant grand synthesis, if you like, of decades of his own thinking on the topic, as well as his assessment of historiographical departures, other people's interventions, Splendid book. And so in as much as that's the history of politics, as opposed to contemporary politics, that'll be my answer. Yeah, it's still also used a lot for contemporary politics, I see. Absolutely. And that directly brings us to the F word. <laughs> How do you define fascism? I actually define it in large measure along Paxton's lines. I have to say, I don't want to call myself a disciple, but I have found him to be much more satisfying than other scholars who you might say take a more sort of checklist approach. 
So I think of fascism as something which is from the bottom up, which is a social movement, and as I think Paxton does, but also one that is, of course, ultra-nationalist and ultra-communalist, right? So this idea of fascism that I think a lot of people forget is that it embraces an idea of communitarianism. It's about, in the current contemporary white American setting, it's about white nationalism. It's about a sense of a race collective as well. Historically, fascism doesn't always have to be quite as racist as it often was in the case, obviously, of Nazi Germany. We know that Italian fascism, for instance, was less obsessed with the race than Nazi Germany. But I think there is this sense of um, sort of the race collective or the national collective, the national community, right? The Volksgemeinschaft, as the Germans put it. And for me, I think that's a hugely important part of this. So, of course, it has to be anti-communist, has to be anti-liberal, has to be anti a lot of things, but it can also be defined, so to speak, positively if we remember what it is that fascists, what kind of vision they have for the future, right? which is not just statist, but this sort of collectivist sense of belonging. This oftentimes confuses Americans and makes them think that, ah, okay, the Nazis really were socialist after all, weren't they? <laughs> and that's, of course, as you and I both know, not true. They called themselves national socialists, but they were at the same time incredibly anti-Marxist. And so by any American understanding, the Nazis would have said, no, 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 you don't understand when we say socialism, we mean this race collective, right? A, a vertical association, not the horizontal association you think of yep. when you think of Marxism. Now, you have written a lot about the relationship between fascism and religion, specifically mm -hmm. Christianity. Yeah. In a lot of accounts, fascism is seen as non-religious or even anti-religious. How do you see that relationship? And is there a difference between fascism as an ideology and fascism as a regime? Especially when I was writing about Nazi Germany, a lot of scholars were still using the category of political religion, understanding Nazism as a political religion, meaning that Nazism, in their view, succeeded because it could mimic a religion, but also at the same time in their argument would end up replacing organized Christianity, much like you pour out a wine, but keep the bottle and then pour in a new wine such that people are supposing that they're getting the contents labeled on the bottle, but in fact, are getting a different content. So I argued against that in my book and said, no, the Nazis were not a political religion so much as they were a religious politics, which is to say that they understood themselves not as a religion, but as a secular politics whose ideas were informed by a certain understanding of Christianity's social, political, economic, and cultural messages. An interesting comparison point would be, for instance, in, I believe, 1988, Pat Robertson ran for president of the United States. He wasn't going to turn the GOP into a church in the most literal sense or a religion itself, but he was going to imbue a secular party with a religious message. I'm not trying to draw parallels between Pat Robertson and Adolf Hitler, They're vastly different in many ways, but rather to explain the form that, from my point of view, Nazism took when it came to the intersection with religion. Right. So for me, I think fascism can historically be understood that way, whether it's the Nazis expressing a variety of what they call positive Christianity, positivist Christentum, and the ways in which they actually did battle internally with the so-called pagans of the party. People frequently suppose that Himmler or Rosenberg were hegemonic in their religious views within the Nazi party. Simply not true. 
or in the case of Italian fascism, where both the Catholic Church and the fascist party understood that corporatist social theory, as articulated by the fascists, leaned a great deal on Catholic social theory, this sort of third path between communism and capitalism. Right. There are other examples too, not least other regimes in Europe, which were very explicitly, quote unquote, clerical fascist. Right. In what ways did these so-called clerical fascist states like Croatia and Slovakia stand out in that relationship between mm -hmm. the fascist regime and organized religion? Yeah. So clerical fascist regimes like the Ustasha in Croatia or the Slovakian regime, the fascist leadership in those countries were clergy, right? So who was the president of Slovakia in this period, but a priest, Tiso. So an actual man of the cloth was also the president of the country. The Ustasha had the participation of clergy within the movement. There is the Belgian fascist movement, Christus Rex, which gave very explicit reference to the centrality of, of Catholic organization in ways that the Nazi party or the Italian fascist party did not do. They explained how their movement was imbued with Christian principles, but the role of clergy in those movements was not primary at all. In the Nazi party, you did have Protestant pastors who could be members. And even unfortunately to say, members of the confessing church could oftentimes end up being members of the NSDAP. But there was no way in which somebody within the Nazi party who had a position of leadership was also going to be a pastor, right? right. Same in the case of Italian fascism, no cardinal or bishop was to be found on the fascist council. Now, you've also engaged in the debate about contemporary politics in the mm -hmm. U.S. And as said recently, President Joe Biden called what he called the mega Republicans, mm -hmm. implying it was a subset of the Republicans, as semi-fascist. What's your take on that? Is the mega movement or Trumpism, if you want, fascist, yeah. semi-fascist, or not fascist? From my point of view, and I know many others, it's really useful to remember that before Trump, there was this thing called the Tea Party, which people have interestingly forgotten now. Yep. And from my point of view, Trump really was the first Tea Party president. Now, mm -hmm. then the question can be broadened out already, you see, is the Tea Party a fascistic movement? Certainly in its origins, I would not have said so, much like the Alternative for Deutschland party actually didn't begin as a xenophobic far-right party, but then quickly became one. I think when you look at the origins of the Tea Party, there's a sort of libertarianism streak in there. And then it quickly gets overtaken by people with immense cultural anxiety. Interestingly, very closely dovetailed with, of course, the election of our first and only black president, right? And I think that dovetailed with the rise of the Tea Party movement to create cultural crisis, or to put it more pointedly, a cultural hysteria, the birther myth presumption that Obama had seized the White House through surreptitious means. And now that government authority has been illegally taken, we must now represent the real country against the legal country. And we must take back government authority for quote unquote, real Americans. So this is very pernicious and in many interesting ways parallels a cultural anxiety that was very pronounced in fascism in the 20s, 30s and 40s that similarly said, we must take back the country from internal infiltrators, fifth columnists. The enemies are without, but also let us not forget within. So this very much resonates with the stab in the back legend that emerged after World War I in Germany that said, we have domestic traitors among us. This is why we are faltering. 
So I think there was a way in which the Tea Party latched on to these cultural anxieties, overlaid, of course, by anti-Black racism, and also the demographic anxiety that came along when it was starting to be reported that the majority of children being born in the United States were non-white. Mm-hmm. The first time since, gosh, the 1600s, I suppose, 1700s, there were more non-white babies being born in the United States than white babies. I think this gave rise to a demographic hysteria among certain people that then Obama's presidency was an example of, right? Ah, this is all part of a plan. Conspiracy theorists then came along and said, well, let us show you what's happening behind the scenes. This is no accident, right? In their own minds, this is all part of a long hatched conspiracy by, among other people, international Jews, quote unquote, to seize America while the getting was good and dissolve it, right? Right destroy America. So these are all the kinds of cultural anxieties and panics that historical fascism also traded in. And so when you ask, is Trumpism a form of fascism? The answer does not pivot on whether we can definitely say that Trump himself personally is a fascist or not. I happen to think he is. He could also be an opportunist. He can also be somebody who was previously in favor of a democratic administration, however many years before, much like Mussolini famously was a notable Italian socialist before he became Italy's greatest anti-socialist. So the flexibility, ideological flexibility of Trump, I don't think should distract us from the possibility, taking seriously at least the possibility that he is fascist. I think Trumpism is a variety of fascism. And of course, that's a very perilous thing to say. I understand the hesitation that some of my colleagues display when they want to not call Trump a fascist. Yes, it could be just a question of gauging Trumpism against a predetermined definition of what fascism has always been understood to be. But I also understand the ways in which, of course, people who like Trump don't want to hear that they are voting for a fascist. Sure. And uh, could be seen as only solidifying their support for Trump in a sort of defensive counter feeling. Yeah. Now, I recently spoke to Phil Gorski, who noted the recent radicalization of what he calls white Christian nationalism, and he suggested that it might be time to speak of Christofascism. What do Mm. you make of this development and term? I think it's useful. I'll have to ask him, of course, to define what exactly the phrase means for him. But when we talk about, for instance, radical Islam and the politics that come out of certain Middle Eastern contexts that lead to violence in the name of God, we don't want to call this a Muslim politics because that would tar everyone with the same brush. So what do we call these radicals? We call them Islamists, right? As to distinguish them from being Muslim or just followers of Islam, they're more than just religious people. They're Islamists in the sense that they want to impose upon society an understanding of how the world should be run based on some reading of Islam. In a similar way, I think we can coin a phrase, Christianists. There are people who want a Christian politics, but then there are lots of Christians who say, wait a minute, no, that doesn't speak to me. I actually like keeping Roe v. Wade as a Christian, do not support forced birth situations for women. They support bodily autonomy for women as a Christian, right? So I think one useful category we can sort of confect is the Christianist, which is perhaps what Phil means when he says Christofascism. It's not just clerical fascism. It's not a fascism that you would have to see cassocks at the party rally to call it clerical fascism in an organizational or institutional sense. Mm -hmm. It speaks probably to, in other words, this point I'm trying to make that a certain understanding of Christianity's role in society and how that should be imposed on all of us willy-nilly, I do think that would make a certain sense if that was his meaning. 
One of the reasons why the term fascism is used or opposed is because it then draws on similarities with the 1930s. And similarities to the 1930s have become incredibly popular. Timothy Snyder has written a very successful bestseller on it. And other books make parallels as well. You see it in the media all the time. What can we learn from Weimar Germany, whatever. How do you see that as a scholar of that period? Are such historical comparisons, which are almost 100 years ago, are they still useful? Or is the political context now too different to draw major lessons for the current situation? I think the honest answer is we can have it both ways. We can retain the category of fascism as a political idea, a political movement, without always having to necessarily use the 1930s as a touchstone. One comparison that I think I saw on Twitter is the notion that for it to be liberalism, I'd have to see sans-culottes engaging in regicide in Paris in the 1790s. So we understand the French Revolution as being a liberal revolution, even as it's no longer understood in terms of its originating context, right? Liberalism as an ideology, as a set of ideas, as a set of passions, if you like, has now risen above the original historical context, such that we don't ask, I'm sorry, sir, for this to be liberalism, I'd need to see your tricorn hat. So when we ask ourselves, how much like the 30s is this? It doesn't have to be a question we ask, much like we don't have to ask, okay, how 1790s is this for it to be liberalism? I think then we can avoid the understanding of fascism as having to wear jackboots and an armband. In other words, fascism sort of as a museum piece. Thanks to the History Channel, we constantly get these visualizations reinforced right, as to, as to what fascism must literally look like. And this is where I find Paxton so useful because he, in his big book, Anatomy of Fascism, he said, you know, let's not have a bestiary approach to what fascism must look like. Let us understand the suppleness of fascism in different ecosystems. Of course, it's going to, in the American case, carry the stars and stripes and serve up apple pie at the picnic, right? It's not going to come into an American context in a brown shirt or jackboots. So I think there's a very easy temptation to sort of mock the idea that this can be fascism because we're not seeing stormtroopers neatly lined up in front of the deus in front of a leader who's sticking their arm out. So if we keep in mind the suppleness of Paxton's definition of fascism. Now, the interesting thing there, I have to add this as a footnote. I'm a great fan of Paxton's work, but I did find it rather ironic or paradoxical even that as soon as people started asking scholars in 2016, 2015, ah, Trump looks demagogic. What do you think? Is he actually a fascist? Not just Stanley Payne, not just Roger Griffin, but even Paxton came out and said, I'd need to see the shirts. This was so much not the Paxton of 2004, who in his book, by the way, described the KKK as the world's first fascist movement, which is an amazingly innovative thing to say. Right. It never Maybe really got picked up uniforms. on. Well, yes, but also because of the role that the Klan played in creating what he called an alternative civic authority to a reconstructionist America whose legitimacy the Klan did not accept. In much the same way, the Tea Party refused to accept the legitimacy of what we know to be a rightfully elected president in Obama. And again, now with Biden, right? The slogan, you know, not my president. Now, if this goes beyond just the mere sort of passions of American politics to an actual belief that the person in the White House has been inserted there in a conspiracy. So this is very perilous for liberal democracy. 
it's much more than about the hoods and the burning of crosses, permit me to suggest. And the ways in which it took the January 6th, thank, thank God he finally then changed his tune. But after the January 6th putsch, I think we can legitimately call it, Paxton then came out and said, oh, okay, okay, it's fascism. And even then, Stanley Payne and Roger Griffin and their associates said, no, 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 it can't be. Yeah. I noticed that over the years during the Trump presidency, mm -hmm. there were more noted scholars of fascism, historical fascism that changed, that were initially skeptical yeah. and, and later changed. And I think both the putsch and his rallies played a major role in that. Speaking of rallies, you just saw perhaps the rally in Youngstown, just 40 minutes from me, right, last weekend. Mm -hmm. For those who need the externals to be convinced, there was a forest of arms that all shut up in ways that people then started arguing, well, I'm sorry, it can't be fascism because they've only got one index finger pointing out instead of all the fingers together, like they did in the 1930s. I'd, I'd need to see that. Right. So there's a lot of pettifoggery about these nuances. I mean, the hair splitting really gets to be, I'm sorry, sort of comedic after a while. But yeah, so I think you're right, Koss. I think a lot of people changed their tune or just stopped articulating a prior view instead of coming out and saying, hey, you know, mea culpa, it is fascism. There are a couple of stalwarts, there are a couple of, I'll call them gatekeepers, who just will not budge because, you know, they've invested too much in this now. Yeah, to be honest, I'm not convinced myself. I think what, <laughs> where I have shifted is I don't think it's particularly useful at this point in time to hmm. be very busy with it. And I will do better on Twitter on this and not <laughs> jumping on it. But to a certain extent, this is now purely a discussion of how far right is he? Mm. And mm. we are well beyond the level of where it's dangerous for democracy, that it yeah. doesn't matter anymore whether it is purely fascist or not. I understand your point of view, and it's prima facie a very valid point. My concern was that people were making that point six years ago. They kept saying to themselves, okay, Trump talks a big talk, but he's not going to do that thing, surely. And then two weeks later, he would do that thing. And people thought, wow, I really didn't think he would go there. I'm not saying the argument itself, therefore, cannot be trusted. I think it can. But there were a lot of people who were, I think, disingenuously making that particular case while saying to themselves, oh, something like January 6th, that can't happen. And once it did happen, then what were they saying? Oh, it was disorganized. Right. At the same time, you can get to point X, and that doesn't need to be the only path to be taken. I mean, there are now people who say, well, I said 50 years ago that Trump was going to start a putsch. There were in those 30 years or 50 years, whatever the period is, right? There were hundreds of decisions that he took where he could go another way sure. and context that there were not again. Sure, like, sure. I personally, as I think almost everyone, would not have expected in 2016 a coup d'etat attempt at the Capitol. Not that particular type of anti-democratic action necessarily. Right. No, others like that were yeah. more in line with what we see around the world, trying to undermine sure. the independent judiciary, as sure. we saw, for example, sure. right? Sure. And shedding doubt on elections, but mm. pretty much calling upon your followers to take Congress. Yeah. No, I see. For me, I was perhaps just being a little more pessimistic. See, it's always easy, isn't it, for us to engage in what Americans call Monday morning quarterbacking, right? I, viewer on my couch, knew what the call should have been, right, or how the play should have been made better than the manager of the team or whatever, the, the coach. So I don't want to engage in Monday morning quarterbacking and just say that because I ended up being right, I knew I was always going to be right or something like that. 
But I think it is interesting to note how it is that even in 2016, there was a performative violence in Trump rallies sure. where people would actually hit each other. Trump would see this. And instead of just pretending it wasn't happening or say, hey, everybody, come on, no hitting, please. We can all agree that, you know, Hillary needs to be locked up without you, you know, punching that guy in the face. Trump amplified it. Yeah. And, and would say, it. yeah, get that guy out of here, meaning the guy who just got cracked in the head. Yeah. So the ways which he was embracing an ethos of violence already in 2016, that doesn't mean that I was going to know that in January 6th, 2020, there was going to be an attempted push on the steps right. of the Capitol. But I think a lot of us were saying to ourselves, holy smokes, this is a different order of magnitude. This isn't just a difference of degree from the usual presidential politicking. It was a difference of kind. Yeah. And that yeah, I, opened the floodgates. I totally agree. I think yeah. that many people, including myself, mm. not so much expected anything else from Trump. We just mm. didn't think that his party and sizable portions of the population would follow him. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with emotional frisson. I think there is a something to be said. I used to poo-poo the role of charisma because, you know, Hitler – in 1928 was screaming just as much as he did five years later, but he only got 2.8% of the vote, right? right? So I would always say, well, surely charisma would have helped him out in yeah. the 1928 elections when his party did so poorly. But I think I've revisited that assumption because when you look at the authenticity with which Trump venomously goes after his enemies on the stumps, right, in his rallies, I think his audience genuinely think this guy is one of them. His hatred is bonafide. People talk about DeSantis and won't DeSantis be more dangerous because he's allegedly smarter than Trump. That might be, he might be a little better on details since he's, you know, a governor and he has executive experience, you know, running a bureaucracy. But DeSantis doesn't bring the same charisma to his stage act yep. as Trump does. I'm not saying therefore he's going to peter out, but the way in which people in the Republican leadership became afraid of Trump because of his rage because of his red hot vitriolic spite on an individual level, both entranced his followers and scared the shit out of the party elite. So there's a cowardice, right? That is still, I think, on display. I don't think DeSantis generates as much actual fear as Trump does. And so I, I wonder if that will not perhaps still play a role. I fully agree. Finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the relationship between fascism and Christianity? Well, this will then get me back to my book. I should start calling it my first book because I'm actually writing my second book after all <laughs> these years. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to engage in the conceit of calling it my first book. <laughs> so I think it's the very popular assumption, not among scholars necessarily, but the broader public, that Nazism was anti-Christian, that Hitler was an atheist, and that his atheism led to the Holocaust. Right. So there's this sort of Dinesh D'Souza sort of line. He may not have authored these ideas, but he's a metaphor, right, for this train of thought. And the Enlightenment, you know, Voltaire blew up the sacred in the European imagination and this opened the floodgates to so called final solutions. Right. Right. So this Voltaire to Auschwitz narrative that a lot of people now are actively working on in the scholarly field had already found a receptive audience among just lay Americans who have always been raised on this presumption that, oh, well, Hitler clearly had to be an atheist to do what he did. And this is such a pernicious view. Things have changed a little bit, I think, since I wrote my book. But I think it's still out there. And it's still something that when I teach my Holocaust class, 
kids will ask, oh, but I, I heard he was an atheist. My pastor a couple of sermons ago said Hitler was an atheist. Isn't that true? Right. right. So, so yeah. that, that kind of thing. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Richard. Casa was delightful. I had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. You can follow Richard Steichman Goal on Twitter at, at Notorious underscore RSG. And please consider buying his book, The Holy Reich, Nazi Conceptions of Christianity, 1990 to 1945, published in 2003 by Cambridge University Press at or through your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I see him down at Dunkow. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capital turned out a little weird.